Welcome to the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thorough discussion and in-depth information about the news, stories, and trends related to emergency medical services in Michigan. The Moz Monthly Podcast is brought to you by the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Here's your host, Moz Executive Director, Angela Madden. Everybody and welcome to season two, episode seven of the Moz Monthly Podcast. Joining me today is Ben Vernon. While responding to a routine call, Ben was assaulted by a bystander. Today, Ben travels the country to describe the event, the physical and mental toll that it took on him, and the hurdles he faced in his recovery. Ben recently taught at EMS Expo, and he's with us today to discuss the importance of provider mental health. Hi, Ben, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, ma'am. How are you? I'm doing. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. Ben, many of our listeners um, were with us during EMS Expo, but many couldn't attend. Could you briefly describe what happened to you that day? Sure. This was uh, June 24th, 2015. Uh, I worked for San Diego Fire Department. I was a firefighter medic at the time. And we ran a routine medical aid at a trolley stop in downtown San Diego. Uh, It's a call everyone who's listening has run before a million times. This was no different for me. And uh, we were helping a drunk, intoxicated male. Trolley security was there. And there was a bystander who, unbeknownst to us, had been fighting with the patient and fighting with the trolley security guards. So we show up on scene and assume control. I start questioning my patient. And a fight breaks out behind me between this bystander and a security guard. Um, We'd only been on scene a short time, so I didn't know what was going on. I jumped in the middle of the fight to break it up, and the bystander pulled a knife and started stabbing me. Uh, He stabbed me just above my belt, uh, missed my kidney by about an inch. He stabbed me in the chest um, between my third and fourth rib uh, behind my left shoulder and uh, punctured my lung and broke my rib, and then he went for my head. Uh, Luckily, he missed Uh, My partner saw a fight. He didn't see the knife and he tackled the guy and he ended up getting stabbed a bunch of times too. So that, that was a, a bad day and a call, a routine call that went haywire pretty quick. Ben, after that day, how long did it take you to feel comfortable responding to routine as you called it medical calls? And then how long after did you feel comfortable responding to more serious calls, stabbings and shootings, for example? Yeah, great question. Um, So my physical heal, I think I healed within three to four weeks. Um, Mentally, it took me a long time to even try to step back on the floor and be a firefighter again. So it was four months before I turned to work. uh, And I can tell you, I was not comfortable for a long time. Uh, Heavy, heavy, heavy therapy, uh, dealing with PTSD and anger issues and um, to where I could kind of control myself in confrontations. Uh, but I would say it was a solid couple of years before I felt like I was myself again. Now, as you know, how Murphy's law works, the first call I ran when I came back to work, you want to guess it was a stabbing to the chest. So, uh, you know, <laughs> and as a first responder, we don't get breaks very often and I was no exception. So, um, I had to deal with those calls immediately as soon as I came back. So, you know, there was no, uh, there was no ramp up period where uh, I got to run on, you know, granny calls for a while before we jumped right in. It was the first call back was a stabbing. So, um, but it, it took me a couple of years before I felt like I was 
myself again and, and wasn't jumpy, you know? So. In your presentation, you talk about a specific treatment for PTSD called EMDR. Yes, ma'am. Can you explain EMDR to our listeners? I will try. It is uh, so simple to do that I was kind of put off by it at first. And at, at my very first initial, I, I thought I was trying to, the guy was trying to hypnotize me. Uh, but basically the way I can describe it is it stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And so essentially the, the way I'd like to describe it, the way it was described to me, uh, the left side of our brain is logic and the right side is emotion. And first responders have this uncanny ability to kind of shut off emotion and just go pure logic, right? So somebody gets hurt. I've never seen a first responder go, oh, you poor thing, you know, you need a hug. Like, that's not what we do. Um, we just very quickly, step one, right? You know, give me the backboard, get me an IV, get me on the radio, like fix this wound, fix that wound, stop the bleeding here. And we're, we're methodical and, and we're ruthlessly methodical. It's, it's awesome, right? We're really good at what we do because we don't get emotional. But as I've learned over time, Emotions don't die, they just get buried alive. And so when we go into that mode of shutting off emotion, it actually takes 18 to 24 hours after the end of your shift for you to turn it back on. And most first responders I know, 18 to 24 hours after the end of their shift is the start of their next shift. So we rarely get the opportunity as first responders to live in both sides of our brain. We get very lopsided. And so EMDR is, is you, you know, you're sitting, you're talking about a call that upset you, maybe a dead child or getting stabbed or, you know, someone hit by a train. I mean, something that was traumatizing for you. And we have a hard time kind of connecting with that emotion. Um, and so you sit and you just follow someone's fingers or a light bar, or in my case, I held onto these little vibrating paddles and it would vibrate in my left hand and then vibrate in my right hand vibrate in my left hand and vibrate in my right hand. And, and the idea is that it's sending sensations up my arm. It's activating both sides of my brain. So I'm engaging logic and emotion. And then all you do is you talk about a call that upset you and, and periodically you pause and you just follow someone's fingers back and forth or feel the paddles or watch a light bar. And, and all you do is you are activating logic and emotion. And it allows you to kind of unlock these calls that are trapped in your in your mind um and it just releases this tension it's so hard to describe um and i don't think i did emdr justice but that is my attempt at trying to describe what it is you you talk about a call you activate both sides of your brain talk about the call activate both sides of your brain you go back and forth and each time i i would leave the office i felt better i felt calmer i felt more released tension um and i just I love it. And in my talk, I usually describe, I, after I did the stabbing, which was obviously weighed heavily on my mind and I was very emotional and very angry. Um, when I realized the power of EMDR, then I went back to his office and I wanted to EMDR other calls, right? Calls from the beginning of my career all the way through to where I am now. And so I just feel like I have this ace up my sleeve that other first responders don't because I know what EMDR is. And so anytime I run on a bad call, if I do it tomorrow, I just call a therapist and say, Hey, you know, get those paddles ready. I'm coming. And I want to, I want to offload this call right away. I think that's an important point, Ben, that that second 
that second point that you just brought up in that once you found how helpful EMDR can be for you after this one traumatic incident, you have gone back and, and worked through other calls. Would, would you think EMDR would be beneficial for a crew member today, just starting out to maybe work through some of those easier calls before they get to that harder call? Well, and, and I think EMDR personally was made for us, for first responders, because we we spend so much time practicing shutting off emotion. Um, if anybody is carrying any sort of trauma in their life, right? And and now we're talking, you can go all the way back to childhood trauma. Um, I, I've, and this is a firefighter, a first responder saying that I think EMDR is a great treatment for that um, sort of thing. So, you know, I think I came into this job carrying zero baggage. Um, I probably carried more than I thought, but I, I thought I was kind of had a blank slate. But but I would argue, yeah, in, introduce everyone starting out to EMDR, let them know it exists at least. And then offer, you know, if you're coming into this job brand new, but you're carrying some sort of trauma, you a lost a loved one or, you know, something bad happened to you. Absolutely, EMDR it, you know, try to offload it and start with a blank slate. Um, but just knowing that it exists and it's there for you if you need it, that is hugely helpful to our profession. That's a great point. How would you convince an EMS provider to actively seek mental health support? Man, that <laughs> that is a million dollar question. Uh, so, well, you know, the expression goes, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink. Um, you know, there are a lot of people in my job, you know, in my department that I, I interact with every day. And I think, man, you could probably really benefit from some treatment, but uh, you know, that doesn't go over well at the dinner table. Um, I think the best thing you can do is educate our people. And that's something I'm actively trying to do. Every talk I've ever given across the country, and I've, I've given my, my talk to 3000 people, and I've given my talk to 30 people. Um, and I've learned even with 30 people, there is someone in the room that, that knows EMDR, that's heard of EMDR and loves it. And there's someone else in the room in the same department that has never heard of it. Um, educating our folks to just what's available so that if they ever do find themselves struggling and they come to the realization themselves, wow, man, I could really use some help. Then they know where to go. Um, after my injury, when I got hurt, my department didn't have anything in place and I stumbled my way through looking for help. Uh, my department has been amazing at trying to build a program now after that incident and they've done a great job, but I'm still talking to departments that have nothing in place, no peer support team, no trained clinicians, no chaplains, um, right? And, and just assuming they don't have an issue or that's another department, you know, that department's messed up, ours isn't. So, you know, building a program, introducing it, letting everybody know the tools are available. Um, now to get someone to actually use them, that's, that's I don't know if that's possible, um, but just let them know it's there if they ever need it, I think is the trick. So you've kind of touched on where my next question was gonna go next. There, There is a large population of listeners to the podcast that are agency or department leaders. What, what should they be providing their team members to help them actively promote good mental health for their staffs? 
Great question. Here's what I can tell you with my department. We had, uh, we have a thousand people. Um, I found good therapists. They, there was a team of them that worked with San Diego police department and I got really good help with them, but they were not covered by our insurance. They were not covered by, you know, workers comp. It, it wasn't part of our contract. And my chief at the time, Javier Maynard, uh, he's retired now, but he, I went to him and asked him for help to help me pay this bill because I had found these this amazing team. And he took it a step further and he got a contract similar to San Diego PD so that this team of clinicians was available to everyone in our department. Well, when word got out that these clinicians were available, they were culturally competent and they helped me get back to work, over a hundred people immediately signed up. That is 10% of my department. And the challenge I, I give to all leaders, do you think your department is different than mine? Do you think you're tougher than us? Do you think you have any advantage over us? And I, I would argue you don't, you're probably in the exact same boat. And so I challenge you, if 10% of my department was hurting and immediately signed up for help when it was given, I'm gonna say 10% of your department is also hurting and need help yesterday. So do the math on however many, if you've got 60 people in your department, that's six people. And again, most departments, you can identify one or two people that are actively showing signs of mental health issues. But if you've got 60 and six are hurting and you can only identify two, that means four are hurting in silence, right? They're suffering quietly, needing help. So first thing is you gotta admit you have a problem. And, and I think 10% is just a really good number to draw from, okay? So do the math, how many people do you have? Second, as many tools as you can give your people. Um, clinicians, culturally competent clinicians, that is not easy to come by. And that's that's very easy to say and very hard to do. So um, a lot of times that entails departments bringing clinicians in and training them themselves about our culture. Um, for example, the first therapist I saw, you know, he said, hey, if you're, if you're feeling stressed at work, just don't run any calls. And obviously that's not even a possibility, right? Like that's, we can't do that. So just training clinicians yourself so that there is a one or two that you can at least feel confident you can send your people to and they won't say something stupid. Um, so clinicians are huge. Having a really good peer support team, I think is hugely helpful because it's your peers that get your people to go to see the pros anyway, right? That you know, you confide in someone and they go, Hey, I get what you're saying. Have you tried calling Steve or Sarah? You know, these guys are great clinicians. They help me. Um, that's a really good stepping stone to get your people to pros in the first place. Um, we had one chaplain for a thousand people and we've since expanded that to 20. The, the whole point is I don't want my people to have to look far for help. I want it to be readily available and easily accessible. So we put posters up at every station with everybody's names and numbers. Here's your peer support team. Here are your chaplains. Here's the number to the clinicians. You, you know, you need help. Here it is. So there's a lot you can do for a program um, to, to keep your people healthy. If there's one thing that you could say to the EMS provider on the street today, what would it be and why? I like the expression. I like to take a knee 
in the therapy office so that I can stand on two feet and be strong in the streets. So when I go to therapy, I let my guard down. I take a knee, right? And I just talk about the calls that didn't go well, the frustration I have at work, the frustration with my wife, right? And I, I just offload that emotional baggage so that when I'm standing on the street and it's time for me to work, I am 100% there. So I, I tell people, don't be afraid to take a knee behind that closed door because it will make you stronger and more capable and more, um, uh, what's the word, more, just more streamlined. Help me out. What's the word I'm looking for? You know, you're, you're going to be better at your job when you need it if you are willing to take a knee in that, in that therapist's office. That's great advice for all of us, regardless of, of our position. <laughs> Good point. You don't have to be a first responder to do that. That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm, uh, as a proponent of mental health education and mental health support, regardless of your, of your job title, what would you say to those people out there that are naysayers of mental and behavioral health truly being problems or issues or diseases for individuals today? Man, you were asking good questions. These are tough. Um, so I, I actually get that a lot. You know, people, um, their departments are still very, very old school. And and I hear the question a lot, what do you do with bullies? You know, people that I, I sit down at the table and I try to talk about mental health and people bully me. And that is a really hard question to answer. Like, how do you beat bullying? You know, that's that's not easy. Here's what I can I can offer is if you want to change a culture, you start with your youngest people. So I worked heavily with health and safety for a few years, and we we went after our brand new recruits in the fire academy. And the the analogy I like is to get firefighters to wear a BA. That is that was not an easy task, right? And I feel bad for that first academy that was wearing BAs. And everybody else would just hold their breath, I guess. I don't know how they did it. They were tough as nails. But the, the thing is, if you keep teaching your academy, right, to wear BAs, well, 30 years later, your chief down to your recruit, they all wear their BAs. And, and voila, you've changed it. And I remember telling a therapist, I was pretty frustrated. I go, 30 years is, that's a long time. And the therapist was really wise. And, and they said, no, it's, it won't take 30 years. It takes about half that. It takes about 15. And I said, well, why is that? And he goes, well, you think of it like a teeter-totter, right? Halfway through, now half your department wears them and half doesn't. And so now it's starting to, to be, you know, a competition and you can start swaying the older guys to wear them because now, right, at some point, 60%, then 70%. So uh, to change a culture overnight, I can't do that. And I can't tell you how to do that. It's not possible. But if you want to change the culture, the, the surest way to do it is you start with your newest members. And that's what we do. We added a, an eight-hour day in our fire academy. It's on a Saturday. We bring the members in off-site. We don't take them to the fire academy. We take them to an off-site location. We tell them not to wear uniforms. We don't wear uniforms because we don't want that, you know, hierarchy and the saluting. We, we want to we want everyone comfortable and we have real conversations with the recruits about mental health. 
And then at halfway through the day at lunchtime, we bring the recruits families in and we bring their wives and their parents, uh, no kids because the topics are pretty heavy. Um, but we bring in their families, we feed them all lunch. And then we have, you know, marriage talks, like real marriage talks of what it's like to be married to a first responder. You know, I think the poster is, I don't know, we're shirtless and we're carrying puppies and, and right. Like, but in real life, we're gone for weeks at a time sometimes. And we come home and we're just beat up and smelly and, you know, just the, the real world versus I think what the movies show are, are very off. So we want to have real conversations with these young families, you know, these young recruits and say, look, you know, this is, this is how it's really going to be. You're going to be raising those kids by yourself. Uh, we're going to be gone on Christmas and Thanksgiving and Halloween and 4th of July. And we're planning on coming home Monday for vacation. Then we're going to get called out to work and we won't be back for a month. Right? Like, are you sure this is, are you ready for this? So we have some really good mental health talks with these guys and it's already started changing our culture. And we've only been doing it for five years, but it's already, I'm listening to conversations around the, around the table, uh, you know, two guys comparing notes from two different therapists and I'm just sitting happily in the corner, you know, listening. And, and so it's, uh, you know, our culture is slowly changing. It's a painful process. I can't do anything about bullies, um, but I can promise that eventually they will retire. <laughs> and, and then hopefully, you know, you're, you're in good shape. So. That's a really important message. And I think it's important. And I really like the example that you're providing by including the spouses, significant others, partners, families of all of the, of all of your team members, your recruits, um, because you're right. It is just as much of a physical and mental toll on them um, as well. Absolutely. Ben, Ben Vernon, thank you for taking the time to join us today to talk about the importance of mental health, especially mental health and for first responders. Is there anything else that you would like us to know before we say goodbye for the day? Um, I, I can tell you, I never planned on this life. Um, you know, I got hurt. Um, I, I never planned this. And uh, I wrote an article for Jim's magazine back in 2016 in February. And the article was really well received. And I just basically described my, my battle with mental health after my stabbing. And I was invited to speak publicly uh, and give the keynote presentation in New Jersey. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I gave my talk and it was really well received. And then I started getting more and more offers and it, it just became so big, you know, so much bigger than me. So I hired a manager and, and asked for help. And she said, okay, well, the first thing you have to do is have a website. And I was like, really? Like I have to have a website. She goes, and a, a special email address. I'm like, really? Okay. Like whatever. So I have a website that, basically highlights my story. It's an easy one to access so that you can get a hold of me if you want to. Uh, but the, the email or the website is www.benvernon.com. And then my email is ben at benvernon.com. So if you want to talk to me and if anybody, you don't have to book me, if you just want to talk and share your own story of mental health, I'm a, I'm a good listener and I won't judge you. And, uh, and that's it. So yeah, if anybody needs to reach out and, and looking for peer support, I am available, even for all you Michigan folks who are listening. Uh, I am available in San Diego, just remember the time difference. So uh, that's it. That's how you get a hold of me. If you want to see some videos or anything, that's all online. So Ben, thank you so much for sharing, you know, a half hour with us this afternoon to share your story to talk about what 
the agency leaders here in Michigan can do to help and support their uh, EMS personnel, their providers, their recruits even. Um, And we very much appreciate you sharing your story with us. No problem. And also, if you want any of that information on how we do family, we call it family wellness day. If you want information on that, you can email me and I'll send it to you and give you the outline of how we do it. So you guys can just copy what we do. And um, I actually took our logo off and I put a little thing that says your logo here. So everything that I have, I'll give to you. And then you can just put your own logo on it. And now you've got your own policies and procedures. So uh, yeah, just let me know what I can do to help. And I'll try to help you guys in any way I can. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It was a pleasure. Good. I'm glad. Awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast, the go-to source for information about Michigan's EMS system. Be sure to visit miambulance.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access other important information from the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services.